Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. This is Dr. Santosh, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I was digging around, and I found some very surprising things that tied into medicine. And I know that's mostly what the show has become, but this time I <laughs> or, mean it. Or sometimes, or sometimes not. Or sometimes this kind of interests us, and now you're going to hear us talk about it. This week, I thought it'd be fun to look at some surprising origins and connections of how common everyday things were shaped by medicine. Let's go back to some of these things that you're going to be like, that's a medical device? Hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh man, it's not even Valentine's Day. Are we talking about vibrators again? Oh, no, but I should throw that in later. <laughs> so out here in Chicago, we are currently in the middle of another snowmageddon or polar vortex or whatever cutesy pun name the news has come up with for it being cold AF outside. Yeah, it's um, 65 degrees where I am in California. You so. shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but you did used to live out here as well and if you've ever lived mm. in one of those older buildings in the northern u.s did you have one of those steam radiators that was way too hot like uncomfortably hot and large like a horror movie monster <laughs> yeah, yeah dr ward and i lived together in a like that old style chicago home wooden floors, you know, paper thin walls and windows that just leaked all over the place. So you'd go to the radiator and you'd, you'd turn the knob, you'd turn the little knob that would allow water to actually go through there. And if you 
turned it too far or if like a valve or something went off, you'd all of a sudden get this like horrible superheated steam. <laughs> and you'd hope that the nozzle was turned the proper way, like away from your face. <laughs> yeah, you could get a blast. You'd get a blast of steam that could create a Batman villain. Like it would be your also your only recourse of like you step out of the shower in the morning and you had to drape you you had to sacrifice uh, some heat so, uh, and drape your towel over that thing so that the towel would not freeze like literally freeze <laughs> but by the time you got back so you could use the towel the next day and these radiators for those of you who didn't grow up in 65 degree weather in California these radiators were pretty present on the east coast and the midwest and anywhere it freezes during the winter and they would get so unbearably hot and still do if you live in a building that has them that you would just throw your window wide open in the dead of winter (laughs) yeah 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 and then if you did it just right josh you could create like a little air current right from one side of the house to the other like you you did a tunnel effect where the hot air would flow in and then the the cold air there'd be just enough to like to create this air current through the house and then you develop a weather system with like fog and lightning inside of your apartment well as it turns out those insanely super villainous well working radiators are mm-hmm. a direct result of another pandemic People are stuck indoors during the cold, and so you have to, uh, you know, like find a way to keep it warm. I'm, I'm a little confused here. Okay, so let's let's back up just a bit. So I, I'm going to put forth to you a fascinating story I heard and have since researched about how radiators that work too well are a result of the 1918 flu pandemic, and it got me thinking. You know, how's life going to change? going forward, and it all started after the Civil War. Lewis Leeds, who ran hospitals for the Army and was then part of the Franklin Institute after the war, was basically the Dr. Fauci of his time. Main public health slash medicine guru. He and Harriet Beecher Stowe, yes, that Harriet Beecher Stowe who wrote Uncle Tom's (laughs) Cabin, they were convinced that Americans were dying from what they called vitilated or, you know, spoiled air, uh, and they called it the national poison. Whoa. Okay. So, so this was this was kind of miasma theory, like the disease comes from stale air kind of thing? Yeah, very similar. I mean, this was the early days of the Industrial Revolution, you know, late 1870s. Rather than Victorian times in London, we're going to handle Industrial Revolution in America. And there was a tremendous amount of sickness, cholera, diphtheria, tuberculosis. This is before Pasteur, before germ theory. So no one really had a a clear understanding of what caused diseases. So like you said, it was miasma, and they thought it was just being in an enclosed space and breathing out toxic vapors. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So, and by the way, they were on to something, right? Because those germs, a lot of them, if they were respiratory diseases, they were carried on secretions like snot. So you'd worry about surfaces, but also could be carried short distances through the air, depending on how big the droplet, if you coughed, sneezed, talked. So there was a good amount of logic in, in terms of like, hey, get, Oh, get it, get some fresh air, you know, space out 
that kind of a thing. So, so how do we get from 1865 end of the Civil War to radiators in the 1918 flu pandemic? Well, Leeds wrote this book about vitilated air, and he, since they didn't have Twitter back in those days, and they certainly didn't have CNN, he and Stowe went on the road with a lantern light show. Uh, I, it's okay. really tough to find evidence of these lantern light shows in my local library, but think of it as a traveling PowerPoint presentation. Um, mm, where they would just okay. have, you know, little slides they would hold in front of a light and they went around and did kind of a traveling medicine show. And it was a sense, it was graphic for the time ankles everywhere. No, no. Uh, in, <laughs> in the show, you had yeah. a father and a mother sitting in a room and you could see vapors coming off their bodies, you know, kind of like, I don't know, stink lines. And oh, okay. okay gotcha. Like I said, it was really tough to find any kind of pictures of this, so I had to go by just written descriptions. But in crawls a toddler in a bonnet with a long gown. That's, you know, the next slide. And then it shows the toddler crawling into the vapor and toppling over in the next slide dead. Ah, okay, that's a little, little harsh, sure. Yeah, this scared the crap out of people. But here was the point. At this time, there was no such thing as central heating. People were using stoves and fireplaces. And the message is, you know, if you don't have a well-ventilated area, this is what will happen to your family if you don't open the windows. Toxic vapors coming off you, coming from the room, will kill your children. Got it. So you have to at least circulate the air. You have to get fresh air in. Now, this, of course, they were short on... A little bit of knowledge here. Yes, fresh air really does help in terms of uh, dispersing um, small particles and droplets and that kind of a thing. But of course, Josh, you and I know that even if you open up all the windows, if people are together in a close proximity, they're still going to transmit this stuff. So they were trying at least. They were hopefully lowering their risk by a little bit by condoning this behavior well enough people were terrified of this traveling powerpoint that lewis and stowe's work started what was called the fresh air movement which was the idea that disease was caused by people being in close confines and breathing which you know for tuberculosis diphtheria cholera all true and they mm -hmm. felt now they fell off a little because when you breathe air out these toxins come out of your body and sink down to the floor and if you get near them you're going to get it and die so that's a little off but <laughs> the idea became allowing ventilation by having open windows would allow free movement of the noxious vapors and disease particles out and accompanied with masks and the 1865 equivalent of social distancing, which is the same, you would be safer mm. from catching local diseases and pandemics. And boards of health across the country started to tell people to leave their windows open to let in fresh air. Okay, okay. Now, there was an author who, who wrote about this extensively uh, on radiators, and he mentioned that engineering texts of the time, uh, he started noticing in all these old-timey engineering books, it would say, you know, we have to design it this way due to the fresh air movement. So he began looking into the fresh air movement, and then I began looking into the fresh air movement. And the idea <laughs> is that it affected engineering because boilers and radiators had to be sized so that they could heat on the coldest day of the year with the windows open because, you know, pandemics still happen in winter. Oh, okay. Gotcha, so gotcha. when you throw your window open 
and next to that humongous radiator, it really was meant to have your window open. So you could let fresh air in and it would have to heat all the cold Midwestern or East Coast air coming in over your radiator. And you could still prevent toxic vapors from falling to the floor and killing your bonneted children. <laughs> Especially the bonneted children who of course, we're the most vulnerable aside from the elderly at the time. You know, we didn't have any vaccines and their kind of immature immune systems and small faces and noses mean that if they caught a respiratory viral illness, they could be in deep trouble. This is cool. You have fresh air movement. As we made it, so these radiators were created so people could have their windows open and get fresh air. There were masks, there were social distancing. The 1918 flu pandemic went in 1918, 1919, and finally began to clear up in the 20s. And ergo, this led directly to the roaring 20s because we got out of a pandemic at that time and people looked at each other and they decided to have a party and they partied for oh, about 10 years. And, okay. then, and then when they stopped partying, the stock market crashed due to all the partying. Maybe the GameStop stonks, and we yeah. went to the and we went into the Great Depression. There's no such thing like a post-pandemic party because a post-pandemic stock party gets stopped by the Great Depression. There's no such thing like a post-flu party because a post because a post-flu party kills stocks. So the heating <laughs> industry was facing this problem of all these systems installed during the 1920s for the fresh air movement were so grossly oversized to deal with open window ventilation. Not to mention in the middle of a Great Depression, the price of coal being what it was, people didn't want to use massive amounts of coal required to heat a place with open windows. But buildings would get way too hot with them closed, and then you'd be overheating and, you know, in some cases, carbon monoxide from the cold and suffocating. So this led to the next step in this. And, and there's a whole bunch of books and other podcasts that go into it, so I'm just going to give you the highlights. By adding metal flakes to paint and painting your radiator, you could cut down the heat output of these massive beasts. And okay, then, gotcha. And then you could further reduce the heat output. So it was like, it was all about having these massive radiators so you could heat cold air and have windows open in a pandemic. And then they're like, well, now we still have this massive radiator. And rather than make a smaller radiator, we need to engineer ways to make our radiators less efficient. Capitalism. Uh, so... <laughs> Okay. So by putting, so they paint it with metal flakes and that reduces the heat output. Then by putting a cover on top of the radiator and a cover that had graded holes on the front, you again, downsize the heat output by the radiator. And that's why radiators are the color that they are and have covers on them. It's not to keep kids from being burned. It's to deal with these oversized radiators. This social event had this dramatic effect on the entire heating and uh, cooling industry. So it may seem wasteful today, but steam radiators were direct response to a respiratory pandemic just like today's. Dude, that is so cool. So, I mean, I actually I appreciated the radiator for what it was because you could really heat up a small space like we had in Chicago. Uh, I guess pretty efficiently despite its, you know, post capitalism type of inefficiency type of things but it, it did a fairly good job and you know you're only using whatever heating element you need and then water 
So you're not, you know, it probably you're burning oil or natural gas or something like that. But it it really would. It would heat up the place, and then you could you could use it for, you know, drying off your towels or your clothes if you were washing them way back when, um, and you didn't need a, a central heating kind of thing. But it's that's so neat to me that the first reason was you needed to be able to heat up your house so that you could open the window and still not freeze to death. Or have your little bonneted children fall over from your toxic body vapors. <laughs> That's true. I'd be so curious to know if it worked to any kind of an extent. You know, well, if, I mean, if it actually- again, fresh air, social distancing and masks, all things that we've talked about historically in this show did work. But it, it wasn't just the heating industry that was affected. So there was our first surprising origin story. Um, but over in Europe, as well, crowded living conditions were contributing to the spread of the exact same diseases, and tuberculosis was a huge killer not just at home, but at schools. In fact, doctors and educators believe that crowded classrooms and lack of fresh air in a bunch of schools helped spread the disease, which we're still debating today. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And of course, you know, like we're saying, and, and a little bit what we know today, Josh is tuberculosis especially is airborne it is extremely contagious so if you have a person who's in the same room with you probably it's going to spread the idea that they were making some of these first strides towards understanding that these diseases were carried on the wind, so to speak, or in the air. I close my eyes only for a moment (laughs) and the virus is on. Uh, But so to keep kids healthy, they basically said, let's take school outside. So the Mm -hmm. open air school movement was launched outside, bro. (laughs) So the open air school movement was launched in Germany in 1904 when Dr. Bernhard Bendix, a German pediatrician, and Hermann Neufert, a Berlin school inspector. (laughs) You get any more German than those two names. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Opened the first World School for Kranklich Kinder, or... Forest school for sickly children. Don't at me for your pronunciations. No, no, I, just, I don't know how to speak any German. I, I just no assume at this point is. anything I say that's not in Spanish is going to be mispronounced. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, sure. in this Waldschule for Kranklich Kinder in Charlottenburg near Berlin, was true to its name, the school was located in the heart of a nearby forest, uh, presumably near Hansel and Gretel's house, with simple wooden buildings used for instruction in cold or rainy weather. Uh, so that's it. You know, if it was raining, they would go under the, this little shelter, but otherwise they just held school in the forest to prevent getting tuberculosis. Now, Absolutely. this open-air school movement came to the U.S. a few years later in 1908, thanks to two doctors from Rhode Island, Mary Packard and Ellen Stone which are super Rhode Island names. And they were among the very first female graduates of the John Hopkins School of Medicine, which we've talked oh, about, our, our Hogwarts houses of Hopkins. We did, we did talk about the Hogwarts, Hogwarts houses of Hopkins. Uh, so they helped found Providence's League for the Suppression of Tuberculosis. Uh, and this was formed when, after running 
and I, I'm trying to imagine what this looked like in my head. After running a summer day camp for tubercular children. I'm sorry, I just had to stop there because I'm like, why Why is that specifically a thing? I'm like, oh, because they have to keep the TB kids separate. But I was trying to figure out what Very. would be like unique tuberculosis summer camp activities. Like who can cough <laughs> the furthest? Uh, <laughs> well, you, you'd have, you know, like the exercises and stuff like playtime would be like, all right, let's let's slay down. Just let's lay down because I'm, right, I'm too tired. All right, kids, let's play hide and seek on the fainting couch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so by you, the way, if uh, little Johnny over there is gone for more than 20 minutes, then we really got to find him because, you know, we shouldn't really leave a corpse in the woods. <laughs> so after running a summer day camp for tubercular children, they thought they would try the fresh air method on a larger scale during the school year. Now. For those of you who are unaware, students in the Providence Open Air School were children who had been exposed to tuberculosis, but weren't actively sick. So over the first cold New England winter, the children would have outdoor class and snuggled in wearable blankets. They held Snuggy School. Yay! Oh my god, Josh, we missed out. I mean, I know. you know. On the tuberculosis also, but <laughs> on Snuggies, I think I would have been so much more excited about school if there were Snuggies. But also outdoors in a New England winter. So That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so you definitely need the Snuggies. So, but here, but again, these were kids who had been exposed to tuberculosis, or like one might be exposed to coronavirus, but they weren't actively sick. And by the end of this school's first year, none zero zip zilch nada of the students had gotten sick and many of them their health had even improved so fueled by this success the idea of an open air school quickly spread and within two years 65 of them had opened in the united states nice okay and i aside from you know uh, the infection control and that kind of a thing as long as the temperature was okay <laughs> this is probably just a great idea in general yeah so you know again so we've got radiators coming up in the nine early 1900s 1920s we have the open air school movement and as the popularity of this movement grew it began to influence architects in europe and the united states who began to design permanent school buildings that reflected the ideas and values of this movement things like walls of glass that slid open to outdoor class areas Indoor classrooms, sliding doors, indoor classrooms exposed to light on at least two sides. A lot of things that all the schools designed, say, before the 1950s, that's what it dates back to. Again, to decrease disease. Now, they they were trying to decrease tuberculosis more than uh, the Spanish flu, but it designed this whole idea of let's let light into the classrooms. Let's make the indoors as much like the outdoors as possible. And when the weather permits, let's actually go ahead and have class outdoors. Sweet. And it's kind of come full circle nowadays. Um, oh, if you go over to Japan, actually, they've designed 
these kind of outdoor schools, it's still for primary school for younger kids, but essentially where everything is, uh, it's actually this, the school is built around a big tree and they have a full surface that you can run along, which is kind of the roof and then ladders and all kinds of things so that you can climb down to the classrooms. Um, They added in one other thing there, which was especially for kindergartners and stuff that basically the kids learn at pace. Like when they want to sit down and do reading or math or something, they do it. Otherwise they just let them kind of go out and play. So yeah, it's basically a McDonald's play place, but with education. (laughs) So much fun. So these influences on architecture lasted until around the 1950s when the advent of all the antibiotics, as we've talked about in other episodes, and a lot of treatments for TB, um, like drugs and also the sanitariums, led to the end of the movement until perhaps today. As you said, Santosh, it's starting to come back. Um, Because frankly, Zoom is just less satisfying for all interactions. So that's our second surprising origin. Schools were influenced by disease. Now, it wasn't just schools, but also your home. Home design in general and bathroom design especially has long, long been influenced by disease. And now we're talking about a point after germ theory had become accepted and was in the process of... uh, (laughs) going viral um, with the help <laughs> with the well, help of I early mean, public health campaigns. Yeah, this is something we knew about for a long time in terms of civic architecture or civil architecture and designing sewer systems. This is what they did to the River Thames in London and Chicago, actually, right? The the big project that actually makes the Chicago River flow in the wrong direction to carry away uh, sewage. And we knew that you shouldn't pile up waste and refuse close to where you live. You know, you got to send it down river to the next town, you know, down, down the river because, you know, let them deal with it. <laughs> yeah, send it to no, St. Louis. But, you can't make them look any yeah. worse. Sorry, St. Louis <laughs> listeners. We love you. Oh, oh, God, Josh, what did you do? <laughs> Go Cardinals. I don't know. So, <laughs> but there, there was definitely a, a, a knowledge from ages ago. So pre-agriculture even, that you cannot leave your waste and refuse where you live, that it's going to propagate disease. Again, it might have been a thought back then that it was miasma or something like that. But well, there's no, this is it's not miasma yet, because now we're looking at this is a point after germ theory was accepted, oh, but, bef- but okay. before antibiotics became commonly used in the 1940s and 1950s, thanks to all our intrepid botanists. Um, <laughs> got you. And is this still, are, are we back when there were still kind of chamber pots? So like you pooped in a, a bucket or a pot and that had to be emptied every day, like outside of your home. So there wasn't, you know, like a, a sewage system yet for the toilet. Yeah, you'd open or, an, or I guess an outhouse. You'd open the window and yell out, Guardy Lou, and chuck your uh, waste out the window. So basically, crowded conditions and poor water quality and poor sanitation made fertile ground for a whole host of pathogens. And at this time, only the wealthy, the 1%, had indoor plumbing, first in the form of a tap in the kitchen and you know later a small sink in the bedroom but there was no dedicated bathroom and thanks to the widespread belief that sewer gas spread disease 
even a lot of upper class urban people had chamber pots and outhouses. Now, the chamber pots would be stored in wood. So the earliest, like, say, 1875 era bathrooms were rich wood paneled cabinets with things kept out of sight, or as I like to call them, poo pantries. (laughs) Yeah, so this is if you were, I guess, wealthy enough and lived in the right spot where you didn't you you didn't put an outhouse right you didn't have the place where you poop where you actually have to leave the house and walk down the trail potentially risking animal attack or something else like that and then go to a separate little cabin if you wanted it inside of your house you had to have the chamber you know your your poop chamber and i guess if you're wealthy enough above that you would have a chamber made someone who would actually be not you part of the household uh someone who you'd hire uh probably for pennies <laughs> it poor things would come in and actually throw that thing out the window uh, which i also remember josh you had to design your house if it was in a city where it had kind of an overhang right so that there was a place for people to walk underneath your house so that when stuff was thrown out, it would be like over your head and into the ditch next to you and not on you. Right. So you had chambermaids, the earliest known, the earliest known ancestors of today's bathroom attendant, cleaning, cleaning out these richly wood paneled poo pantries, you know, in that (laughs) dark Victorian style. But by, again, the early 1900s, 1912, at the same time you have the open air school movement, at the same time you have the radiators, medical medical professionals realized, and more importantly, finally began to convince the public that indoor toilets connected to a public sewer system were far more beneficial to stop the spread of infectious disease than flinging your feces out the window like (laughs) some kind of upper class monkey. (laughs) i i never know what to say to those bathroom attendants like if you you know they're hanging out all dressed up in in men's rooms and you know you never know so like i don't know what i would do if that type of attendant was just in my house all the time i'd just feel awkward wipe your bottom sir with a tic tac (laughs) uh (laughs) the wood the wood in these bathrooms was the very first thing to go in favor of open plumbing fixtures. Why? Because they're easier to clean and more sanitary. Um, Mm. So you start losing the wood paneling next bathtubs, which were originally made of wood and lined with sheets of zinc or copper, which although we've said copper does have some antibacterial properties, but not enough. Uh, So you later got this enamel coated cast iron introduced by the Kohler company in the late 1800s to make their tubs superior, clean, and hygienic. So this kind of fussy, stuffy Victorian bathroom was becoming a thing of the past. Hygiene and sanitation were the future, which meant getting rid of anything that wasn't, now tell me if this sounds familiar, easily Mm. wiped down, cleaned, washed, or swept that could potentially harbor dirt, dust, and germs. So wooden floors were torn out in favor of tiles, or even better, a new material made from cotton scrim with linseed oil and cork dust that they called linoleum? (laughs) 
Stop saying it like you've never heard of it before. You knew you'd grow up just like me with those sticky-ass linoleum floors. You, 1980s, 1990s, you know for a fact you grew up when, you know, that stuff would start to peel in a corner and expose that grimy floor. So, so this linoleum material. Oh, no, don't you dare. <laughs> I know you know it, Josh. I <laughs> I know I know you are also like tasked with the with the chore, just like he said, hey, could you just go clean the <laughs> floor? And the soap would just make it stickier. <laughs> so now, so bathrooms are now losing all this heavy wood paneling and getting tile. They're getting exposed pipes. They're getting clean, easily wiped down more hygienic materials. Lighter textiles like linen are beginning to supplant the heavy drapes because not only are they easier to wash, but they let in more air and sunlight in accordance with the fresh air movement. Oh, cool. Uh, next. Wow, look at that. Right? Okay, okay, it, go ahead, it's yeah. all coming together. Uh, <laughs> this is so neat. Next. Arsenic-infested wallpaper. The green pigment that you see in all these old-timey Victorian walls was green because of arsenic and other toxic chemicals. And again, let's tear out the wallpaper that's killing people. There's a great documentary you can find on YouTube, Hidden Killers of the Victorian Home. It's about an hour, and it's one of my favorite things to watch every weekend because, uh, well, <laughs> y'all know me. You all know me by this point. This is why I can't find you between five to six on a Saturday. <laughs> it's time for my <laughs> Hidden Killers of the Home series on YouTube. So the wallpaper was gone, and without it, the walls became white. Uh, white became all the rage because you wanted to reflect sunlight because light was considered to be the one of the best disinfectants. By the way. One of the reasons 19th century wallpaper was so heavily patterned was that flies were so prevalent in any smoke-filled wood-paneled homes that the busyness sure. of the walls and the patterns would mask the flies and related stains. That's okay. So now that's why white is kind of the standard color. I mean, both of these reasons. Wow. Yeah, so you take out the poison that's in the wallpaper killing you, and you also make it harder to hide all these things that could harbor disease. So as sanitation becomes more of a consideration, the walls get these easily cleaned white tiles or just became painted, like accent walls, things like that. So okay, now we okay. have tiled floors, light <laughs> linen draperies, open air windows, a whole design to let light in, make it easy to clean. The Art Brass Company of New York began selling their products under the name Sanola to capitalize on the sanitary design uh, craze. And these Sanola pieces weren't just practical. You know, their single piece castings were easy to clean. They also had their own style influenced by Art Nouveau. All right. Oh, Oh, this is like flowing all together. That's this is so cool. I I didn't realize. I mean, I thought honestly and truly that this was just advances in kind of fashion of design. I didn't really put it together how health or perceived health benefits kind of you know started making impacts on all this but it makes sense like th this is the same kind of things we talked about when we were doing fashion in medicine 
Yeah, so, I mean, just very briefly for those of you who are not familiar with the style of Art Nouveau, it's an international style of art, architecture, applied art that emphasizes movement and natural forms like curves like you might see in plants and flowers, uh, a sense of dynamism and without straight lines, and the use of modern materials like iron, glass, ceramics to create unusual forms and larger open spaces. I'm not going to try and make the claim that all of Art Nouveau arose from sanitation, but you can see how, you know, medicine and health really and disease really influenced all these things uh, along the way. So Sanola products, easy to clean, Art Nouveau, and now you have your brass casings and your the bathroom starts looking less like this richly appointed study and more like a laboratory everything's white easy to clean flowing lines which by the way i'm almost certain and everything you're telling me yes you're absolutely right sunlight does desanitize a lot of uh or sorry desanitize sunlight does sanitize a lot of surfaces there are some surfaces that are too porous, of course. They have too many holes where bacteria can hide, and you can put as much UV light through there as you want to, and it won't clean it up. But yes, absolutely, and fresh air is an excellent thing, uh, as long as you don't have pollen allergies, I suppose. And moving air throughout the house in general for psychiatric health, for uh, overall health, it's an excellent thing, especially if you're burning stuff inside, right? Like if, if your mode of heating things up is to actually use wood smoke and that kind of thing, it's, it's a really good thing to open it up. The fact that it started from this theory about, you know, how germs work and flow and everything, there was probably a little bit of impact on that, but overall it was great for health in general. It was awesome. Now, in multi-story homes, so now we've gotten the public to accept bathrooms, and we've made them look like little laboratories. And <laughs> yeah, and in multi-story homes, bathrooms were usually located on the second floor near the bedroom. But as influenza outbreaks raged in the 20th century, some homeowners added a small half-bathroom, basically known as a powder room, on the ground floor of a house near the entrance because in an era of daily home deliveries by Amazon, oh, I'm sorry, in an era of daily home deliveries of ice, coal, milk, and groceries by your local okay. by your local iceman, mailman, butcher, whatever, powder rooms gave delivery people or visitors an opportunity to wash their hands using an easily accessible sink rather than tramping whatever diseases they may have on their rounds up to the areas where people were sleeping. And you know, and so instead of bringing germs from other people's homes upstairs into the family personal quarters, you began to have a small bathroom near the entrance of a sink and a toilet where people could sanitize themselves before entering any further into the house. I'll go ahead and throw in a um, Indians knew this before it was cool kind of thing in that because we knew that uh, bringing or Tramp, uh, kind of uh, bringing your shoes and, and, and mud and everything from the outside was a bad idea. For a long, 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 long time, we always had, you know, a lota, a little uh, 
source of water and something where you could wash your hands and feet on the porch or the veranda of the house. Essentially the same idea as a powder room and, and wash up and clean off before you stepped inside. And you'd clean your feet and your hands, uh, especially with these kind of things. And it became ritualized as you know, kind of a religious thing or something. But really, Josh, it was this idea had been around for a really long time in different civilizations um, until it kind of made its way around. Now, again, what's old is new. But again, I like the idea that the powder room was essentially invented mm. to keep those filthy delivery people out of our bathroom <laughs> in the home. Like well, that, and, that and, was the concept. <laughs> it's not, oh, visitors are coming over. It's people who are coming in with ice cold groceries, whatever. Wash your hands before you drop off my package, Uber, you know, 1890s Uber driver or <laughs> early 1900s Amazon guy. And and that was the thing where they could have really helped each other out if it was ritualized as not just, you know, those people coming into your house, but actually for anyone coming into your house that they didn't bring in or, or kind of tramp in pathogens from the outside on their shoes and hands is that you wash up before you came inside. But you're right, because it is, you know, set this way where it's it's just for the servants or whatever it is then it it doesn't have the kind of public health impact that it could have so this is you know the surprising origins of radiators school design and even how your bathroom evolved in response to diseases now once antibiotics became commonplace around the 1940s and 1950s design really didn't have the same responsibility of promoting disease avoidance, and so other trends emerge. For example, carpeted 70s bathrooms and fuzzy toilet seat covers. Oh, <laughs> so we took a serious step back is what you're saying. And then design began to backslide into where you would see the wood paneling or other things like that. So it's really... <laughs> so, well, it, it makes a little bit of sense because people really do get nostalgic right that's how we have throwbacks and you know uh what do you call them retro so they were going retro <laughs> before retro was a thing is that they were people were remembering what it was like oh you know when i was a kid i had it designed this way and maybe we can do it again and of course the reasoning for why it was changed off there was forgotten by a previous generation yeah so that's those are all the ways that, you know, disease influenced design surprisingly through the years. I, I never really stopped to think about how my bathroom came to be. And now I could tell you, I look at it very differently when I'm in there. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll throw in just one more fun little story that you may not know of how not necessarily medicine influenced design, but something I think we also didn't really think of is Santosh, you, you're familiar with the crash test dummy, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right now, I guess they're plastic or whatever they are. But uh, well, uh, you're talking about the actual crash test dummies, not the band. Right. 
Right, and I think the, we the... we grew up <laughs> we grew up in a generation where they had commercials with those you know don't be a dummy wear your seatbelt and they had the talking crash <laughs> test dummies. Yeah, yeah, those guys were great, and I have to say it worked out really, really well because over the course of the early '80s and '90s up to 2000. That, along with kind of legal regulations, really, really, really improved the rate of uh, compliance with safety belts and actually lowered rates of lethal car crashes. Even though there were anti-belters, just like there's anti-maskers and and things like that, (laughs) Um, you know, because it's kind of nice to know that, you know, we made it through anti-belters and we came around together as a society just just basically like, you know what, these are a good thing. But the original crash test dummies were human cadavers. Now, Whoa. stay with me. Well, okay. Stay well, with I, me. Because this makes a ton of sense. But yeah, keep going, keep going. If you want to build a dashboard that doesn't fracture the skull if a head slams into it in a crash, you need to know how much of a blow the head can take without being fractured. Now, you may think to yourself, well, you can just sit and do that with a bunch of math. Well, the padding has to be as stiff as it can be, because if you make it too soft in a high-speed crash, the head will plow right through into the metal behind. Make it too hard, Mm -hmm. and at low speeds, you could get traumatic brain injuries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is, a, I guess, a latest that we can think about in a series of using dead something or other in order to simulate you know what a crash in a dangerous conditions we've done this josh with pigs um you know cadaveric pigs and because they're about the right size for human beings if you breed them just the right size and everything but it makes sense that you'd need something human shaped in this case because it would have to be ridiculous despite the geico Uh, commercial pigs can't drive a car no. <laughs> oh, dude, is there anybody listening who still remembers the Geico pigs? <laughs> wow. So, and keep in mind, you if you think of those old cars from, you know, the 1950s, like, you know, the, the Grease era movie, those things were built mm-hmm. like tanks. They were <laughs> solid. And they had to be yeah. because, you know, car man, well into the 1950s, car manufacturers were basically claiming that accidents could never be made survivable. The violence was simply too much for the body to bear. If you were in an accident, you were probably going to die. Like this was the automotive industry's position. Can't make it safer. (laughs) If you get hit, tough luck. Yeah, yeah. So at least let's save the car. Is that the idea? (laughs) Yeah, but no, the idea was make the car so heavy that, you know, so much of the force would be blunted, it would never reach the human. Oh, oh, that makes it. Okay, so the opposite of what we do today, which is with crumple zones, actually allowing the car to collapse and the the force to kind of go into compressing the car. It was really just put them in the middle of a big steel cage. Yeah, make every human their own Iron Man. The work began in the late 1950s at Wayne State University in Detroit. And the first part of the body to be studied was, unsurprisingly, the head. And initially, the experiments were pretty primitive. Like, eh, graphic moment here. Embalmed corpses from the university medical school were just 
dropped down an empty elevator shaft onto a metal plate. Mm. That was that's how they simulated <laughs> car crashes. Well, okay, okay. So you, instead of doing a, a horizontal force, you just turned it into a vertical force and used just gravity as the opened the door and chucked the bodies down an elevator shaft. <laughs> What I love about this is I'm sure they didn't design an elevator shaft, so they'd have to go to like, I got, I don't know, an abandoned place or something like that. It turned Which, out, it turned out the head was actually surprisingly strong. Uh, these early elevator shaft experiments showed that it could take a load of about a ton and a half for a fraction of a second without injury. Oh, okay. All right. Now, of course, as the technology improved, then they had all the different automotive testing things they do now where they put them on a little roller coaster. And then we co-opted that and turned it into like the Superman coaster at uh, Magic Mountain where they launch you forward zero to 60 in a second. Mm -hmm. That's an er that's based on early automotive designs. Um, <laughs> now, a lot of these human cadavers used in the early days and surprise even today, although automotive companies don't like to talk about it, occasionally some do still use human cadavers. Now, the crash oh. test dummy technology has gotten much, much better, so it is rare that you will find any company who will admit to this, but it does mm. still give you very useful information. Um, but here's the thing. Most of the cadavers they obtained tended to be elderly since the only major killer of the young in the developed world is a motor car and corpses, which have already been through a crash are of no use for crash <laughs> safety testing. <laughs> so you'd have to, have to get someone who died from something other than being crushed in a giant tin can. Right. So most of the cadavers were elderly. And as you all know, elderly bones are more prone to break. Elderly sure. organs are easier to bruise. So cars were actually over-designed for safety because they are built for the most frail among us, whereas the younger, healthy ones. So again, as and that's why they do still kind of need to do some cadaver testing, um, mm -hmm. which it is so insanely difficult to find anything published about what sort of things they put these through. A lot of what I found came out of one BBC special that was done. And to even track down this Wayne State study was a nightmare. As I said, elderly bones break more easily. There's no pressure in the lungs and blood vessels of cadavers, which is other problems. And living biological tissue is dramatically different from dead tissue. In these cadaver crash tests, uh, the early ones, the researcher had to manipulate the body's joints to loosen them. He also took out the brain and put gelatin in its place, in addition, <laughs> to, in addition to screw mounting accelerometers to the head. Whoa. So, oh, okay, gotcha. All right. So, I, like I said, it, it kind of ends there just because the fact that this whole story is based on surprising origins, meaning it's really tough to find proper research and documentation of these. So I did my best to provide you with a few sources that you can further explore. But anyone out there who comes across more, please let me know. And I will happily bring this series back to do again and give it a cutesy little pun title. <laughs> That's so much fun. I love how much of our lives is centered around improving our health, uh, whether the information was correct or not. But the fact that it became fashion trends and building trends 
this is super cool. I absolutely love this. And yeah, I definitely hope we can do more because this is exciting. So next time you are on the pooper, take a look around. And now we've given you medical things to think of, not only of what's coming out of your body, but the room in which you are expelling it. (laughs) Everything comes down to poo. (laughs) So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed Mm. by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to whatever sources I could find in researching this episode. And until next time, as always... Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe. And if you are lucky enough to have gotten a vaccine and your city is more open or your airports are, well then, get out there on the road and happy travels. Hi, guys. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.